You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and joining us as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, I'm glad that you could make it to this one. Last time I saw you, it appeared as though you were going to be snowed in at a cabin and, uh, for all I know, possibly eaten by your family. So, uh, looks like you guys made it back to civilization. I'm not going to say we didn't consider eating each other. I'm not going to say that. There were some, some dark moments in there where we all had to face our inner demons, but, uh, then we remembered we have four-wheel drive and we just kind of rolled out of there. It's actually quite easy. The entire co-main event podcast family went on vacation this past week. Uh, you, your wife and child, myself, uh, my wife and child and Sir Nigel Longstock, who is familyless. Uh, he was also there. Sort of bringing us all down with his loneliness. Yeah, the being, world is his family, I think. Being an awkward, what, fifth wheel in this scenario? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I think the important thing is that we all did a little team building. Uh, I mean, no one wanted to do the trust fall, which I kept suggesting over and over again. And that's cool. But uh, I feel like it was a good chance for us all to to unplug and yet reconnect. That's because we don't trust you. Just yeah. so... No, so I was, you know. I was totally going to step back and let you guys fall. Yeah, we know you were. That's why we didn't want to do the trust falls. Anyway, we're all back. We uh, we took some time off from the mixed martial arts sphere. Were you able to reacquaint yourself with everything we may have missed? Uh, I was mainly too busy uh, weaving you this dream catcher. Oh, that is awesome, dude. Yeah. Well, so much for my nightmares. Yeah, I'll just go put it on the rear view mirror of your car right now. Thank you. I appreciate that. In your face, Freddy Krueger. Uh, this week, as usual, the co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. And round number one, for the second time this year, most people pretended to be really angry after the UFC released another fighter that very few of them liked before it happened. How long now before we're all like, oh man, Nick Lentz got fired? I am outraged. And in round number two, not so fast, Lusty Gusty, it's Glover time. And How long have you been working on that one? Which Honestly, what? be honest. Which one? The second one? You know which one. Well, it's funny that you should ask, sir, uh, because I thought about making it sort of a Vader, Big Van Vader reference and going, it's time, it's time, it's Glover time. But I didn't end up doing that except for just now. I don't understand the reference, but go on. Yeah, sure you don't. Always trying to act too cool for my pro wrestling references is Ben Folks. In round number three, Brazilian MMA fighter Leandro Feijão Souza died while cutting weight prior to a shooto event last week. So that's bad. All that, plus Master Tweet Theater, just saying stuff, and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from George Bullis, who writes, Guys, I need your opinion. I never once have paid for a UFC pay-per-view, and I have watched them all by a legal download. I tend to give support to the UFC and MMA by buying signed posters and other collectibles, and I'm just wondering, does this make me a bad MMA fan? I await your judgment. First of all, I'm going to say, if you've watched all of the UFC pay-per-views by a legal download, congratulations. <laughs> that seems like more trouble than even buying the damn thing. Yeah, you don't even like occasionally go to a bar or a friend's house like almost by accident. There's no Hooters where George Bullis lives, I can only assume. Yeah, but uh, apparently a pretty good internet connection. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Also, 
Signed posters? Is that are you just saying are you just saying like you buy stuff, you know, like whatever crap is out there, or are you actually buying signed posters? Because I don't understand somebody who won't pay for a pay-per-view, but does see like a signed poster on the internet. It's like, oh, I gotta have that. that what are you gonna I, do with a signed poster? I have to be honest with you, that part of this email made me think that that was like the sort of uh the hedging involved in the confession. You You're know, like when maybe. you watch the first 48 and the, the murderer finally comes clean, but they're, they always like, uh, they, uh, you know, uh, mitigate it somehow. Yeah. And they're they always like, well, I didn't mean to shoot the guy. Yeah. Like I had the gun. He lunged at me. It went mm-hmm. off. I killed him. So what you're saying is you don't believe that George Bullis is really buying signed posters no, and other collectibles. And, collectibles and he, and other collectibles for all I know he is. But when I read that, I just thought like, eh, all right. Okay, let's get more to the question. Yeah, to the original question. That if you don't buy UFC pay-per-views, if you watch them all by illegal download, and by the way, George Bullis, I believe the FBI is at your door right now. uh, Does that make you a bad MMA fan? I mean, I don't care. I'm just gonna say I don't care. I don't. Chad, Chad's a nihilist, so uh, you know. Well, I mean, I can only I can think of one possible argument against it. Let's hear it. Besides its sheer illegality. And the fact that the UFC will straight up take you personally to court or whatever. Yeah. Like and then Dana White will did. like gloat about it on Twitter. Like, like he just fucking spikes a football in your face on Twitter. The, my, my, my one possible argument against it is that I guess you are taking money out of the pocket of the fighters who get a cut of the pay-per-view money. Exactly. Which I can't get behind because as we know, those dudes are all hurting for money anyway. They need every cent that they could get. So as an MMA fan, I do like to know that. You know, George St. Pierre is going to be able to buy the new Bugatti or whatever because I I, uh, I spent the money to get his fight. And John Jones is out there bleeding for his cash, man. That's and, right. And you're not giving it to him. You you can't even be troubled to go to a Hooters. Right. I mean, I'm not. nobody's going to cry for the UFC that they're not getting George Bullis' money. But, okay, I, I guess if we were to go to the, uh, you know, if we were going to get all Emmanuel Kant on this one, what if we all did this? What if we all only watch by illegal download? I mean, you could make the argument then the UFC would come up with a different business model, or maybe the UFC just wouldn't be around and fighter pay would be even worse. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's that's probably a solid point. I I'm always just going to come back to the more world real world explanation. I don't work for the UFC and don't care how much money they make. And everything is meaningless to you. It's your Chad. That's right. Dennis. That's right. These men are cowards, Donnie. I believe in nothing. The second piece of listener mail this week comes from. Vedran Lipovich. Nailed it. Or Lipovicich. I nailed it again or somehow. Li- Stop it. Lipovic. Stop it right now. He writes, I would like to know why is takedown defense not scored more in fights? If taking someone down means so much, quote unquote, you decide where the fight takes place, then why is defending it? Why does defending it not mean the same? Two fights come to mind, the Gustafson Jones fight and uh, Machida Davis. See, um, I think my explanation would be that that as as the name of it refers, takedown defense is defense. You're on defense. The other guy is forcing you to defend his takedown. I guess if you're going to score, takedown defense would be a little bit like scoring submission escapes. Yeah, or like scoring just ducking out of the way of a punch, uh, which, I mean – we, I think we have seen judges try and score that. Like, I remember in the first Leota Machida Shogun Hua fight, I believe it was everybody's favorite Judge Cecil Peoples, uh, but I could be wrong on that. One of the judges, though, in defending scoring that one for Machida was like, well, hey, Machida was so elusive, he was making Shogun come after him. Uh, so 
arguing like kind of octagon control via getting out of the way. Uh, but see, I guess when like I feel like when we ask these questions, we act as if scoring is more precise than it is. Like right. they're sitting there yeah. marking little boxes like, oh, take down, you know, or like take down defense. And like we just want to add like a takedown defense box to the score. They're right. not. They're watching five minutes of fighting and at the end they're going, oh, I think the guy in the red one. That's what it is. Yes. We pretend that it's more like official or technical than that, but it's not. Yeah. And, and in that same vein, I would say that when I'm scoring a fight in my head for – no reason at all, since it doesn't matter. Like I do, <laughs> and nothing I, matters. You don't believe in anything. I think that I will give more uh, credo to a guy if he is able to to like foil the other guy's game plan. You know what I mean? So even though I'm not technically being like, oh, take down defense number one uh, plus point two five on yeah. my personal scorecard. Like if there's a fight where one guy clearly wants to take the other guy down. But the stand-up guy is thwarting that and is able to sort of implement his own game plan because of it. Uh, I feel like that goes to the the uh, you know the slippery octagon control part of the uh, of the unified rules. Even though I don't think that the unified rules make any reference at all to scoring takedown defense. Well, I don't think so either. I don't but, think they make reference to much at all, to be honest with you. But I think that uh, one of the points you made was interesting, and I think it's the same thing that we say about takedowns that where nothing happens afterwards is. If the guy is able to stop the other guy from taking him down and then implement his game plan afterwards. I mean, I think the point is you still have to do something with it. You know, and that should be the same for takedowns. I mean, you know, takedowns, sure, you're deciding where the fight takes place, but if you just take the guy down and he gets right back up and you didn't really do anything to him while he was down there, I don't say that that counts a whole lot for you. Still, I feel like good question. Yeah. From Vidron Lipovich. Oh, that was actually not bad. The third question this week comes to us from Chris J. He writes, with the beef between Sonnen and Silva coming to a new peak at this weekend's altercation at the Olympia Expo, it seems like they're putting the pro wrestling back in MMA. Do you think this type of behavior will become more common as MMA enters the mainstream since these worked conflicts ultimately sell? In this case, it seems like it has been effective for generating public interest in a fight that parenthetically, in my opinion, would not be very competitive. Or are you one of these people who thinks that the altercation was real? Shame on you and a pox on your families. Parenthetically, especially Ben. That's uncalled for. End parentheses. Uncalled for. Now, I don't know if Chris J wants to put a pox on your family just just because he doesn't like you or if he just expects more from you than he expects from me in, in your ability to sniff out a worked confrontation. Between Chael Sonnen and Vanderlei Silva. I assume by now you've watched this this video. Oh, I watched it. <laughs> you seem like you really enjoyed it. I would say the thing that tips you off at first that it may be a, I'm not going to say worked, but planned altercation is about five seconds into it when it switches camera angles while Vanderlei Silva is stalking his way through the uh, the Olympia Expo, which... I don't even know what that is, but yeah. it sounds like you get a great Euro there. Uh, <laughs> because you don't oftentimes, if you're doing a reality show, have a multiple camera angle set up for where Vanderlei Silva is going to be walking through this crowd of people. Well, the fact that there's a camera there at all suggests that at least one of the people involved uh, had a plan for this. Yeah. Well, no, I think Vanderlei like, recorded it for his uh, – video blog or something, which, which is the same thing as, as working it. It's the same thing as, I mean, I don't know if Chael Sonnen knew it was going to happen or not. And frankly, I don't give a shit. Uh, it's not any more interesting or less interesting to me if it was real or fake. Cause I feel like the whole thing is retarded. Uh, but 
clearly if you're Vanderlei Silva and you have this plan to confront Chael Sonnen for your video blog, that alone makes it sort of a staged event. And I love thinking of Vanderlei like planning out this video blog. I mean, like, all right, so the beginning will start with me kind of like standing around while a bunch of like screeching guitars play in the background and I'm yelling at him in Portuguese and then I go and confront him and then we both get pulled away and then I yell at him in Portuguese some more like back in the same setting that we started with and slip I slip in a motherfucker yeah, in there slip a motherfucker in there make a bunch of threats uh talk about how I saw the fear in his eyes and we call it a day big bang boom but it, you guys aren't even fighting each other what what is this doing what are we doing with this for me it just makes me even more tired of this of this so-called rivalry and if it was real in the sense that Chael Sonnen didn't know it was going to happen uh he's got to be laughing all the way <laughs> all the way back to Gresham uh because this as as Chris J points out in no way would this fight be competitive like Vanderlei can can run his mouth all he wants and film all of the confrontation videos that he wants to and Chael Sonnen would still take him down and probably choke him out in about three minutes but the only way Vanderlei can win a fight at this point at the highest level is if the other guy plays into his game plan if they have a tacit gentleman's agreement to stand and bang bro which <laughs> there's no way on God's green earth that Chael Sonnen wouldn't go out there and just shoot immediately and take him down unless maybe Vanderlei realizes that and thinks that the only way you convince Chael Sonnen to stand and bang bro is to say that you saw the fear in his eyes and that if he shoots and tries to take you down, that that's just proof of his fear. Which in which in case, you don't know a goddamn thing about Chael <laughs> no, Sonnen. Hey, I'm not saying that it's a, a perfect plan on Vanderlei's part, but I'm just saying that's one possibility. Remember in the old UFC, I guess maybe they still do this, where they put up guys' uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses and the little... They still do it. Bruce Buffer still was like, this man's a kickboxer. And it's like, no, they're all... They would put MMA like fighters. three things up on the... Oh, yes. Up on the screen. Yeah. Uh, they used to put for guys in there, will shoot immediately. <laughs> uh, that's still... That's still plays for Chael Sonnen. Yeah. Will shoot immediately. I mostly enjoyed what, right before Vitor Belfort lost to Randy Couture the first time where it said no known weaknesses. And then he went out there and got his ass kicked. Yeah, we found one. Uh, we found one there <laughs> at UFC 10 or whatever, 12, I think it was. Uh, the last question this week comes to us from Yotam Wilson. He writes, so Dana White has a tweet off with Ken Shamrock, and Shamrock comes out as the sensible class act guy who won't stoop down to Dana's level. Are you fucking kidding me? Ken also mentioned other championship fighters Dana has problems with. The pattern here is with Dana, not MMA fighters, that's for sure. If tomorrow John Jones leaves the UFC, will anyone be surprised if Dana trashes all over the place? Trash... I think he meant trashes him all over the place. I honestly like Dana, but I hate the fact that he is the pen that he is the pen used to write and sometimes edit MMA history. And then he says, "Discuss" in all caps. <laughs> okay, well then you should shout it if it's in all caps. I'm not gonna. Okay. I'm not gonna shout it. Well, let's just talk about the the Ken Wayne Shamrock. Uh, Dana White Twitter beef briefly here. Yeah, I don't because know if I'd say that Ken pretty, Shamrock came out as a sensible class act, but. Better than you'd expect, Ken Shamrock. Well, yeah, I was I was impressed. I have to say. Well, maybe I don't know if impressed is the right word, but like he definitely definitely high roaded it the whole time, uh, in a way that made you think maybe he's not actually writing his own tweets. I don't know. <laughs> well, there is a point though where you know, and I can see how for Dana White that's probably frustrating because there are there is a trend of guys who, if they're out of the UFC, if they're on the outs with the UFC. Uh, like some sour grape shit will start to make them a little more like aggressive in like trying to attack the UFC and they feel like, you know, they're just 
Like there are some guys out there who they're bitter about that things didn't work out for them. And you could see how a guy like Ken Shamrock would be like, and if I was coming up and doing the things I was doing back then, now I'd be making a lot more money. Uh, and he probably feels like he had a lot more of a role in building the UFC than, than Dana White thinks that he had. So you can see how there's an honest disagreement there. But there is a point that, man, Dana White's got to realize that there's not as much to be gained as just like being a kind of an in-your-face like bully about it, like, hey, you owe me $175,000, you poor bastard. <laughs> you can't afford to pay me. It's like, man, we know that about Ken Shamrock, and that's kind of sad. That, that bums us out. Should bum us out that, you know, former fighter who doesn't really, you know, have a whole lot to show for his efforts. Right. Especially since we know Dana's going to tip his waitress at the Palms $175,000 yeah. this weekend. No, he's going to lose a million playing blackjack tonight. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right that I think he, he, uh, he tweets with the heart. Mm-hmm. And maybe not necessarily with the head a lot of the time. Kind of ironic, I guess, that this happened the week that he also cracked off that jam about female fighters being too emotional. To so be on, emotional. On Just Twitter so emotional. that we talked about last week. Can't contain it. Uh, and, you know, we've said this on the podcast before, but I, I think it, it, it still stands and, and reflects this situation that at some point Dana White can only call so many guys scumbags before we start to notice a common denominator in all of the situations, <laughs> right. which Yotam Wilson, to his credit, points out, a common denominator obviously being Dana White. That said, there's still a, a, a notable portion of MMA fans that are just going to take it from his mouth uh, as though it's gold and and just believe whatever he says, which is part of the UFC's overall genius in terms of how they've marketed themselves and how they've created the Dana White character uh, in in public or his public persona. I'm not uh, he's being himself. Let's yeah. put that out well, there. See, I don't like, think he's playing a character. That's but. the thing. I think something like this is evidence of, as we've said before, Dana White having the the virtues of his faults. Like he is the guy who is so competitive and uh, was so unwilling to back down on anything that he will have this out with Ken Shamrock on Twitter. Um, and just like in your face about Ken Shamrock owes him money. Go get my money, Ken. You know, that kind of stuff uh, where he doesn't really have to do that. Like, we know you're successful. Clearly, you've been incredibly successful. And most of us, if we had been that successful and had Dana White money, man, we're not flying back and forth to Brazil all the damn time. You and I would have quit a long time ago. Fact. We would have been like, all right, well, we're heading off the reins, you guys. Good luck with the UFC. Take care of it. We'll be at this lake house just hanging out and doing whatever we feel like. We wouldn't still be working and doing this stuff. That's because we're different kind of people. And he is uh, like that drive in him, that same drive that keeps him wanting to do this shit even though he's incredibly rich and doesn't have to is also the drive that lets him get carried away on Twitter just being in your face about Ken Shamrock's poor, poor financial decisions. Yeah, and all of that I think is a valid point. And uh, certainly from Dana White's point of view, you understand how he feels like he takes a ton of flack that he doesn't deserve. and, And that's probably totally true. At the same time, you got to appreciate dudes like Ken Shamrock that don't necessarily just back down because 95% of the mixed martial arts world is beholden in some way to the UFC. And most people are just going to like bury the hatchet yeah. as soon as Dana White Except figuratively for the guys yells at them on Twitter. Who have nothing left to lose like right. Ken Shamrock. Exactly. So I feel like that's, you know, that's something to enjoy about this situation is that he's not just going to back down and, and make nice via back channels or whatever. Right. He's just going to totally high road your ass the whole time <laughs> and tell you that at the end that he hopes you're happy. <laughs> I hope I hope you're happy, Ken. 
Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the podcast in future weeks to air grievances or put a pox on our families, you know how to do it. Go to the website, co-main event podcast, or no, co-main event.com. There you go. Used to be co-main event podcast. Then we changed yeah, it. Back when we were small timers doing this for free. That's right. Now the oh. money is pouring in. <laughs> yeah. Scrooge McDuck style. Yeah. I go swim in my pool full of money after this. Anyway, that's going to do it for, uh, for listener mail. We'll be right back with round number one. Well, Ben, Yushin Okami took a bad one in his last UFC fight earlier this month, losing to Ronaldo Jacare Souza by uh, TKO due to punches in two minutes and 47 seconds in the first round. Uh, this week, we found out that, that Okami had been released from the UFC. News surprising enough that it is currently noted on his Wikipedia page, which I am listening or looking at as we record this in the far right notes section of the page it says subsequently released from the ufc in parentheses after his jacare souza fight which that's I feel... a, that's the thing we're doing now on wikipedia have is you it? noticed that yeah. no that's, this is the first time i've seen it i've noticed it in a couple different guys where they will always amend something to their thing about being released from the ufc which then frequently has to be amended again to say how they got back in the ufc See, this is the first time I'd seen it so i assumed that it was noted here because it was so surprising we saw a lot of people uh flip their shit on the internets this week. That is the technical term. Yeah, they flipped shit. As doctors would say, in, they uh, shit. In a way that was very reminiscent of when John Fitch was released earlier this year. Fitch and, uh, and Yushin Okami, both uh, similar, I guess, in the way that they both had fighting styles that were often maligned by people who had to sit through their fights. Also, and both had unsuccessful title shots. Both had unsuccessful title fights, and both were probably in the... B plus area of uh, UFC fighter compensation, I would probably say. Uh, so let's just kick it off, I guess, to start off with by saying, are you surprised by Yushin Okami's release? And are you going to flip your shit over it, man? Well, I am a little surprised. And as long as we're making the, the Okami-Fitch comparison, we should note that Okami's record is better than Fitch's was. I mean, Fitch was kind of in a lull there where he had had one exciting fight where he had that uh, decision uh, that was, you know, fight of the night, I believe. Uh, and, uh, then, but before that it was, you know, loss, draw, followed by loss, you know, so Fitch's record was a little more mediocre at the yeah. time when he got cut. Okami Oka though. Yeah. Okami is three and three going back to February of, of, or no. Yeah. Going back to August of 2011, it yes. should be noted though. His losses were Anderson Silva, Tim Boach and Jock Array. And in between two of those losses, he had put together a three fight win streak beating Buddy Roberts, Alan Belcher and Hector Lombard. So at least those last two wins, those ain't nobodies. Yeah. So well, and you know, not that it really matters at the end of the day, but he was winning that Tim Boach fight. It wasn't like he just got outclassed there by Tim Boach. True, he he yeah. was winning the fight and then, you know, Tim Boach just, uh, flipped his shit and came on strong and knocked him out at the end. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the guy's record, he's been in the UFC for like seven years, and he's lost five fights in that time. You know, uh, he lost to uh, Rich Franklin, uh, Chael Sonnen, Anderson Silva, Tim Boach, and Jacques Array. I mean, that's not bad. Like, obviously, that guy's a good fighter. We, you know, we had him at USA Today and MMA Junkie. We had him ranked number seven. Uh, and, you know, even the few of the guys who were ranked ahead of him where you think, 
that dude might have a problem with Yushinokami. Like, it doesn't seem like Yushinokami sucks or anything. But at the same time, you know, maybe I'm, I'm affected more after having that long talk with uh, Joe Silva and Sean Shelby when I wrote the thing on them. But when they made the point that, you know, hey, if you're tired of rematches, if you're tired of seeing the same fights over and over again, if you want to see new faces and guys get fresh opportunities and us looking for the next contender, old guys got to go. And I get that. The only way I see that you can be really mad about the Yushinokami thing is because you cut him after, you know, one loss rather than waiting for him to lose another one or something. Uh, you cut him from, from one loss after a three-fight win streak. You know that there's no way you'd be doing that if he fought like Dan Hardy or Matt Brown, like more of a balls-out stand-up fighter. Or Alan Belcher, you know, for that matter. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that, like, to the guy at this point if you know, fighting style had no role in it. I mean, you mentioned compensation. That, I think, definitely has some role, but so does fighting style. I can see how you can get mad at that and say, whether the UFC is doing that intentionally or not, they're, have, they're shaping what they expect out of fighters and are thus shaping the sport in a way. Yeah, and I agree with that. It, it, it uh, you know, for the, at least, I think since he lost Anderson Silva in 2011 at UFC 134, it was hard to imagine or it was hard to view Yushin Okami as a guy who was creeping on a come up, right? Right. You didn't feel like he was just about to be the champion. No. I think when you put that together with the money that he was making, which uh, you just told me before we recorded this, it was what, 42 and 42 to be the last time he fought uh, in Vegas where it was a, a reported payout was, yeah, his win over Belter and uh, I think he made 42 and 42. Then he won the next one. So, you know, probably his, his contract's going up there so that, you know, by the time he he probably made run hundred grand for the Hector Lombard fight, uh, and you know he lost to Jacare, but was probably you know making in the fifties somewhere uh, for that. I think when you put together the uh, the 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 fact that we didn't see him as a guy who was about to be the champion, the the money that he was getting paid to fight, and the fighting style, which obviously is a thing that I'm totally against uh, picking on guys because of their fighting style. But you put those three things together, and I think that's probably what the UFC is thinking when they cut him. And so for, from that perspective, I think it, it's, it's sort of un- understandable, although I admit it was a little bit of a surprise. And when I first saw the news on Twitter, I thought, wow, cut Yushin Okami, that's cold. That is a cold thing to do because the guy had won three in a row right before his loss to Jock Array. To me, I think it really underscores the point, no matter who you are, there's really no job security in this sport at all. You could get a detached retina, you could blow out your knee, you could lose one fight and get cut. Yeah, Anything can happen to you, which used to be the slogan in the UFC. Right, by the way, any any anything can happen. Whatever they used to, as real as it gets. As real I, don't as know. It, I don't know. Whatever. But okay, uh, no, I mean, I see what you're saying there, and because I mean, Okami has, I think, 18 fights in the UFC. If you're gonna cut that dude, you will cut anybody. Well, and here's the thing that I was thinking about, and I wrote a column about this. You know, we're recording this on Sunday. I wrote, wrote a column about this for Sunday morning. Uh, that I think we sometimes view that in the wrong way because we will we will sit here and we'll say man he was in there for seven years had this many fights you know did this well and really if anything the time that you are there without becoming the champion at a certain point works against you like it's not like oh all this on the job experience how can you cut this guy he gave you all these years it's like all these years gave us the opportunity to see that if it was going to happen for him if he was going to be the champion He'd have been the champion by now. And we forget sometimes that that is, I mean, in fighting, that's what it's about, is becoming the champion. You can also be the guy who, you know, I'm never going to be the champion, but I put on a good show. And that'll buy you a little time. 
if you're, you know, if you lose a couple, if but if you're consistently one of those guys, that buys you a little bit of time. Not a bunch though. There's still no job security for that. You're you're still gonna end up, you know, after each fight wondering, are they, you know, if you lose, are they gonna cut me, or am I exciting enough that they'll give me one more? You know, so that doesn't change it too much. I think that that at the end of the day, it's still about are you on your way to becoming the best? Uh, if no, okay, are you making us some money then? No? Well, shit, man, you got to answer yes to one of those questions to stick around now. And if you can only answer yes to the second one, you know, that's not going to be good enough for long. Yeah, I think what you just described is the harsh reality. Yes. I'm not going to say that I condone that uh, on the first hand, because I think what you just described is one of the things that separates combat sports from pure sports like football. Uh, also you know, a team sport, but go on. Combat sports is more, you know, more of a mixture of uh, of entertainment and sports. Nobody is like, well, the the Minnesota Vikings lost four Super Bowls. Maybe they shouldn't be in the NFL anymore. No also, one says that, would that be about awesome the Bills. If we had some kind of relegation system. Nobody says it about uh, Serena Williams or whatever. Uh, Isn't she pretty good? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I was trying to think of an individual sport. <laughs> yeah, that's you where you, you, reached, the, you reached for your tennis metaphor there. You burned me on that team sports thing, so I had to scramble and go with an individual sport. Well, see, that's the thing. No that one's saying Dale Earnhardt Jr. ain't won the chase. Boom, know. gotcha. I don't even know. It sounds like a foreign language right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I was telling you uh, while I was on vacation, enjoying my time away from writing about MMA, I read uh, Nate Jackson's book, uh, former Denver Broncos wide receiver and, and tight end, wrote kind of a, a memoir, if you will, about playing in the NFL called Slow Getting Up. And it's good. And he actually wrote it. Like we're always saying that we would love a fighter to do. Uh, he actually sat down and wrote it. And, uh, you know, kind of about a guy just trying to hold on in the NFL for a few years. And he describes that same harsh reality. I mean, now they have it a little better because they have a union uh, and a, a collective bargaining agreement. So if a guy blows out his knee, you can't just totally drop him. You know, the, the team does have some responsibilities to the guy. Um, but he also talks about that same lack of job security and how, you know, he'll be friends with these teammates and then the guy is cut and never see him again or he's traded or whatever and you, you never see him again and how guaranteed money is all that matters. I mean, you can get a, a, a contract that's, you know, five years for $50 million, but if you, if you blow your knee out tomorrow, it's not really going to help you. Uh, and they're living that same kind of harsh reality. We just don't see it as much. Um, and especially because we focus on the stars of which there are more in pro football. Sure. Uh, the other thing that I would say to to just if I could undermine our view of, of Yushinokami, our negative Please. view of Yushinokami, you know, we just a few minutes ago sat here and we're like, we don't have the sense that this guy is about to be the champion because he lost to Anderson Silva in 2011. I feel like we should probably mention current state of things. Anderson Silva, no longer the middleweight champion. And Yushinokami has not fight, fought Chris Weidman. So, like, if you're going to make the case, hey, this guy could still go somewhere in the middleweight division, I think you can do that because, at least for the time being, we have a new champion who this guy has not lost to. Okay. I mean, you're kind of reaching there, but okay. What? How's that a reach? The guy's not the champion anymore. It's, that, that's what we talked about the whole time with, with guys who've fought for the title twice, like Chael Sonnen, thinking, well, he's not going to fight for the title again. He's lost to Anderson yeah. Silva twice. Now he's not the champion anymore. It, it opens up new life for all those guys. He is not the champion for the moment. However, they do have a rematch scheduled. So, you, I mean, I don't know how many, how, how many future plans you want to make based on that is all I'm saying. I'm just saying. Uh, also, uh, Dana White went on Twitter, said that the, one of the reasons that uh, Yushin Okami got, got cut is that the, uh, the middleweight division is just stacked right now. Pretty much the same time Yushin Okami was getting cut, Michael Bisping suffers his eye injury. 
He has to pull out of his scheduled fight against Mark Munoz. So the UFC takes uh, Lyoto Machida out of his scheduled fight with Tim Kennedy, causing Tim Kennedy to go on a bit of a Twitter rant uh, over the last couple days. When that kind of stuff happens, you feel like maybe you would want a Yushin Okami floating around who maybe could step in there and fight Tim Kennedy. That's actually not a bad point. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with Master Tweet Theater because Sir Nigel is here. He's going to step in and, and lead us in everyone's favorite game. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am riddled with disease. Oh, no. What, what types of disease? I have a cold, a child's cold, given to me by a child of you. <laughs> Wait a minute. How dare you? How dare you come on my podcast and level such accusations? That, that cold could have come from anywhere. Let us, sir, examine the facts. First, I came in contact with your child. Second, I noticed my sleeve looked like a snail had climbed up it. Third, I developed a hacking sound coming from my bronchia. <laughs> well, okay, I guess that is pretty strong evidence. Um, but fortunately, you, you drug yourself off your deathbed, which we all appreciate in a way. Uh, and I assume we're here to deliver some master tweets. I must ask, even though I fear to, uh, does this week's master tweet theater have a theme? Yes, sir, it does, and I'm glad you asked. I bet you are. It gives me a chance to belight your ignorance and to light the ignorance of all CME podcast listeners. The theme this week is bathos. Which is when you take a bath and it's kind of weird? No, it no, is bathos weird. Bathos is the guy who founded Amazon.com. Oh, okay, yeah. Jeff well, Bathos. Who then bought the Washington Post. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. both wrong. What? Bathos is the monster who killed Superman, and <laughs> it is the sudden descent from the sublime to the ridiculous. Well, this is going to be fun, I can already tell. Uh, those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets uh, with the theme he just said, and we're going to try and guess. So uh, let's do it. Hit us up with the first one. <clears throat> yes, tweet the first. Let us begin. <clears throat> At Dana White. If I was you, I would keep my name out of your mouth. If people ask you a question about me in an interview, it's best to say no comment. <laughs> okay, first of all, that's Rampage Jackson. Yes. Uh, second of all, so the sublime, I guess, would be the part where he tells him to keep his name out of his mouth and the ridiculous is the no comment? I'm, I already hung up on this. In fact, this entire tweet is sublime. The manful rage of Rampage Jackson calls down the anger of the gods. Well, I already feel like we've been sold a bill of goods here, Chad. Yeah, uh, we both knew that that was Rampage Jackson. Sir Nigel just uh, confirmed it, possibly because I saw on Twitter that Sir Nigel Longstock replied to this tweet from Rampage Jackson. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. What did he say? Uh, maybe he should tell us. In fact, I remarked uncharitably that if he were Dana White, the interviews would have stopped a long time ago. <laughs> Touche. He did All not right. dignify me with a response. <laughs> probably, probably a good decision on his part. Up next. Hmm, yes, tweet the second. A Latin version of the song Susudio called Pupuseria about a man's love for a meat pie that he doesn't know what filling is inside. Whoa. Yeah. So okay. 
I feel safe saying that one is not Rampage Jackson. Um, I'm going to guess friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs. Yeah, that's where I was going to go, too. Uh, let's see here. Who is another uh, smart fighter? Oh, you know who has a, a college degree? Matt Mitrione, the meathead. <laughs> well, go ahead. Get your Mitrione guess out of the way now. Matt Mitrione. Hmm. Both fine guesses. Both men likely to fall in love with meat pies and both wrong. It is, in fact, Josh Barnett. Oh. oh. Damn it. Descending. See, I should have known that. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, so you had the right I was on methodology track. to try to think of a smart fighter. I thought I was sure you were going War Machine there. Hmm. At least I got the the weight class. I get some points for that, right? Yeah, no. Complex yeah, sure, we'll add it to your system. imaginary point total. Hmm. Moving on. Hmm. Josh Barnett descending to the ridiculous, <laughs> I might add. And now, back to the heights of the sublime. <laughs> I am embarrassed by my performance, and I apologize to all of you who support me. P.S. I lost by decision. He didn't finish me. Huh. Well, this is a mystery. I like this. Chad? Uh... uh... Alexander Gustafson? I guess. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have the tone of a, of a lusty, gusty tweet to me. I guess. I mean, I guess it could be something from this past week's Bellator show, but I wouldn't know who fought or if any of those guys were on Twitter. So, uh. <laughs> Well, okay. So I guess we're just going to assume UFC 165. I'm going to say Costa Filippou. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Both fine guesses, both as usual wrong. It is Sean McCorkle. God oh, yeah. damn you. Taking time out from racial tweets to lose a fight. Because he went over and lost to uh, Marius Pujanowski, the right? The Puds. He lost, he got decisioned by the Puds. But don't worry, he didn't get finished by him. Wow, well that makes it seem like a descent into sadness more than a descent into anything else. Yeah, wait, wait this was the sublime? Tragedy can be sublime. Oh, a man God. undone by his own weakness and also a fat Polish dude. Classic. I hate you. I hate you. I love me enough for both of us, sir. <laughs> Tweet the fourth. Had to pull my car over and snap this Sacktown native stash. Dude was confused, but a stash like this. And then a picture of a frightened man with a mustache. Gotta be Uriah yeah, Faber. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Uriah. Well, am I allowed to say Uriah Faber? You are. But, uh, you know, after I've, I've now that I've said it out loud, now I'm wondering well, if it could be another alpha male I'm, guy. If you're going to go Uriah Faber, I'm going to go Joe B. I mean, I feel like between, be. the, between the two of us, we've got to have this one. That's right. So, I Nigel, like I feel good about you it. do have this one, and you also overthought it. It is Uriah Faber. Uh-huh. See, that's the thing is we need to start taking into account how lazy Sir Nigel is when picking these out. Yeah, it would also be nice to have a uh, maybe some some actual rules. <laughs> But I don't know. Whatever, man. Whatever. It's whatever. I just did a Twitter search for sack. There was no laziness involved. Mm. Tweet the fifth. Sing me song piano man or sing me song or go fuck yourself is the same thing. One more time, please. Sing me song piano man or sing me song or go fuck yourself is the same thing. I feel like that's got to be poet Philip Baroni. Yeah. I'm hopefully drunk. Or not. Or Drunk came from the piano bar. Or sleepy. One of those two. So, Nigel? It is not the poet uh, Philip Baroni. It is the Iron Sheik, who what? is somewhat related to MMA. 
He's an Olympic wrestler, Greco-Roman, and, and MMA is basically pro wrestling. You Ask know what? Anyone. I'm gonna I'm gonna let I'm gonna let this week's Master Tweet Theater, which I think we could all agree was shitty, I'm gonna let it slide because you're a little under the weather and because my genetic line is responsible for it, but only because of that. Your progeny. You get it together, man. You get it together, Iron Sheik. Come on. Your diseased progeny. Well, I guess I, I gotta ask, what are you what are you doing? After you leave here, after you go back out into the big wide world, what's the plan for Sir Nigel? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just begun filming on an educational psychosexual drama for children about two co-workers who torment a deaf co-worker called In the Electric Company of Men. And what role do you play? I play the electric company. <laughs> well, that was Sir Nigel Longstock. And that was Master Tweet Theater. Good day, sir. Well, Chad seemed after the lusty, gusty John Jones bout, we were headed for an immediate rematch, which I think on last week's show we both deemed awesome. Yes. Now, nah, not so much. Glover Teixeira going to slide in there and get that title shot, bro. What? What's up? What, what's up with that? I thought, I thought we all were agreement in the rematch stuff. Yeah, I don't really... Uh... And by all, I mean you and I. You, that's, yeah, that's, you and that's me. That's all it takes, right? You and me. I'm not. I'm not totally pissed about it because I feel like even though very little is uh, can be taken for granted in this sport, uh, I do feel like we will see Alexander Gustafson and John Jones fight again at some point. Uh, maybe that's just my own naivete, feeling that uh, you know Gustafson is going to go out and prove his worth against some other opponents, and that Jones will still be champion and still be in this division. So on that hand, I'm not really that mad, but I also don't 100% understand the rationale uh, between passing up on that fight to put to put Glover Tashira in there. Uh, it's Glover time, I guess, as as I mentioned earlier in the yeah, show. Yeah, no, that was it was funny the first time you. Said I do it. that just to see you roll your eyes, uh, because. I guess the, the the problem that we have had in the light heavyweight division is that it's felt like John Jones is so far ahead of everyone else that it's hard to to book him in a fight that feels competitive. Like before UFC 165, we did a whole round of this show kind of mocking them about the uh, the, the the style that they went with and trying to to prop Gustafson up by repeating how tall he was yeah, and that what it, what his reach was. Uh, then he goes out, does a really good job against John Jones, I think. You know, with some time to think about it and some distance from the fight, it feels more definitive to me that Jones won. I think the majority of people out there have come around to that, to feeling like that's okay, that Jones won that decision. At the same time, I don't think anybody would have argued with a rematch. Now you have a guy and a fight with John Jones that sells itself. You don't, you know, Jones isn't the only draw anymore in the, in that scenario. You could, you could pretty easily sell it. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, wouldn't be nothing wrong with just giving Glover Tashira some time to cool his heels. So, or time to win another fight against somebody, you know, a little, little scarier than Ryan Bader. True. True. Uh, so, I mean, I don't really fully understand the rationale behind kind of fast forwarding Glover to into this fight when you've got the the uh, Gustafson rematch just kind of sitting there 
uh, for the taking. Which I feel, to me, it seems like it's way more exciting. I understand that you don't want to just keep doing rematches. And, I, you know, I was talking earlier at uh, Jiu-Jitsu today with friend of the podcast, Dan DeStefano, who was making the point like, hey, you can't just because it's a close fight, you can't keep doing rematches every time. I mean, two guys are title contenders. There's going to be some close fights. They both got there for a reason. You know, they're both pretty good. I wouldn't say that we do it because it was a close fight, because I think you're right. The more I think about it now and the more I go back and look, I do think it's a little more clear that John Jones won at least three of those rounds, uh, especially the end of the fight. Um, and by 209 rules, we know that that's important. Uh, I think you do it again because it was a close and awesome fight. I think because it's going to be fun to watch and because you do wonder, like, Hey, did, did Jones take him a little too lightly? Uh, did he not realize, you know, the secret to beating him till the end? Did Gustafson gas? Like, what would happen if they both got the chance to make some adjustments and come back? Would Jones just blow him out of the water? Would Gustafson do even better the second time? I mean, those are interesting questions to me, and they're a lot more interesting than seeing him go up against Glover Teixeira, which I feel like is a much harder sell. I would think just from the UFC's uh, need to get people to buy the damn pay-per-view, that would be the more appealing option. I mean, maybe there's something we don't know here. Maybe Gustafson can't be ready in time for when they want him to be. Uh, although, you know, his camp says that he's he's not seriously injured or anything. I don't know. But if barring anything like that that prohibits the fight from happening at a, in a timely fashion, it seems to me like that's the, the obvious choice just for, like, business reasons, if nothing else. Yeah, and I understand what what... Dan DeStefano is saying, and I don't disagree with it because I feel like that's a that is a valid point that you don't want to do all these rematches. But I feel like it's a valid point when you're talking about somebody like Frankie Edgar or Benson Henderson, somebody who it feels like at times exclusively has rematches. Right. John Jones has never had one. He's never fought a guy twice. So I don't feel like that's a that's a real uh, like a harbinger of doom for the light heavyweight division that he's going to fight fight a guy twice. I would say for uh, Gustafson Jones too. It's it's like you said. It's probably only going to be a marketing chip. And so to do the rematch, I felt like all of the factors were in play the first fight was awesome the first fight was close so if you really wanted to and you were the ufc i'm sure you sure you could dredge some people up that thought gustafson won and put it in a promo video and uh you know that jones jones hasn't fought anybody twice this is the first guy that's given him a real stiff test uh so i think all those things sort of conspire to make it a very uh sellable fight for the ufc which is probably the the biggest determining factor in in what they do so yeah i don't really fully understand where we're going with Glover time, but uh, I'm not. I'm also not mad about it. I no, guess because I, I can't get too mad. But then you know, here's one thing. You know that by between now and then, watching uh, UFC on Fox uh, shows and and all that's in the UFC on Fox Sports. You know how many times you're gonna have to sit through whatever Jones Teixeira ad they put together. And whatever they choose to zero in on, like, oh, Teixeira has the widest shoulders in the UFC, whatever. <laughs> whatever they choose, you know, you're going to have to see it over and over again. I would, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm sure I would rather prefer you just showing clips of the Jones-Gustafson fight uh, to promote a rematch. Like, there's five rounds of footage. You can just show them hitting each other and blood flying all over the place over and over again. And it'll already be a more tolerable ad for me personally. Uh, but, you know, I feel like the thing with the, like when we talk about in the lightweight division, oh, you know, they keep having these close fights, you can't just have rematches all the time. One of the reasons I felt like that was a mistake in the lightweight was because that's such a deep division, there are always a bunch of challengers sitting around, always somebody who you're thinking, okay, how about that guy, how about that guy? You don't really have that problem in the light heavyweight division so much. I feel like you don't, 
You don't lose anything by giving Teixeira, who admitted he wasn't happy with his last performance against Bader, uh, a chance to beat somebody else, you know, make a better case for himself and really come in there with a full head of steam. Uh, and I think, you know, we have a good time if we have to sit there for Jones Gusty too. Did watching Jones struggle with Gustafson make you feel like uh, Glover Tashira is a more dangerous fight for him than you would have thought before? No. I agree. But I was hoping that you would say yes. And frankly, say more than just no. No. But that's very on-ben folks of you to just do that. No. Wow. Okay. Just shutting me down over here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I feel like uh, uh, Tashira has a chance to win because he's got... He, he throws them bungalows. He's got that power in his hands. But I feel like in a weird way, the Ryan Bader win made him appear less uh, dangerous to, to John Jones, just because I think we talked about it right after the fight happened. It made him look somewhat plodding and like he was just going to come forward and, and, and throw those hillbilly haymakers and one of them's going to knock you out. I don't know that that uh, that. that strategy works as well against John Jones as it do, does against Ryan Bader. Uh, yeah, I mean, look especially at, since we saw Jones take something of a beating in this exactly. Gustafson fight and Gustafson fight and rebound from it. Yeah, although, and never really. I mean, he looked damaged, but never really looked too wobbly. Never looked like he was in a whole lot of trouble. I mean, say what you want, that man could take a shot. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't have to very often, but when he does, he looks like he takes it just fine and keeps on coming back at you and isn't afraid to keep trying wild shit like. You, he he did not freak out when things weren't going his way, uh, and I think I think that helped us learn a lot about John Jones. And it also made, it, like you said, I give you less of a chance to go in there, land one of them bungalows, uh, and shock the world. Uh, but then again, you know, I would have said the same about Anderson Silva before that Chris Weidman fight. Yeah, the question for Tashira may well be: Is he going to be able to stop the takedowns in the way that Alexander Gustafson did? And and like I said, from that Bader uh, performance, he looks like way more of a stationary target than uh, than Alexander Gustafson proved to be uh, against Jones. Uh, I guess Tashira could pull off that jumping guillotine choke that he has, right? And that's one of his go-to moves. But yeah, we've seen it now. Yeah, we've seen it. <laughs> And you better believe that Jones is breaking it down. Anyway, uh, that's probably going to do it for our discussion in round number two. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me before we move on to our final round. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? You mentioned already uh, Tim Kennedy losing his fight. Uh, I don't know if you follow Tim Kennedy on Twitter, but ever since that happened, he's been openly campaigning for a new fight by just calling motherfuckers out. And including women and members of the media and some female members of the media. Alistair Overeem, uh, Shogun Hua. Uh, also, I feel obliged to read his tweet, one of his tweets to Shogun Hua. I think Shogun Hua dresses like a Brooklyn pimp, not the classy kind. I should give him a lesson in style and fighting uh, and then invites him to, to meet him on November 6th. My favorite is the one uh, to Rich Franklin. Do you have, do you have uh, that yes. one in front of the, you? Hey, Rich Franklin, a.k.a. American Fighter, I want your nickname. It's cool and clever. I'll fight you for it. Tim, a.k.a. Future American Fighter. Yeah, that's awesome. What I'm saying about it is, are you fucking kidding me? Tim Kennedy goes from Strike Force to the UFC, and it's still the same shit for him where he can't get a fight? First it was Tim Kennedy, you know, couldn't get a chance to fight enough because he was active military. Then it was because, you know, in Strike Force, nobody really wanted to fight him and, you know, usual crazy Strike Force shit. Now they're taking his opponents away in the UFC and just leaving the man to go nuts on Twitter. Are you fucking kidding me? Somebody fight Tim Kennedy. Chad, will you fight Tim Kennedy? November 6th. No. 
I'll help you get in shape, man. All right, let's do it. Okay. You heard it, Tim. Watch your ass. Watch your ass. I am. I will. My strategy, though, is to tap out at the opening bell. Can I do that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do an Are You Fucking Kidding Me about you afterwards, but if that's what you got to do. As soon as Cecil Peoples does his karate chop and says, let's get it on or whatever, I'm just tapping. Well, I'm I've, falling down on the mat and I'm tapping I it. feel like maybe you have a, a skewed idea of what this is going to be like. Actually, I'm going to go three-point stance so I can't get punched in the face or kicked in the face and I'm tapping. Well, I'm tapping. We'll work on it. All We've right. got some time. It's, it's a working game plan. Anyway, Ben, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week is a bit of a throwback because it's something that I meant to mention last week but then forgot because we are just having so much fun. Uh, like we do. The UFC... I feel like needs to stop with these bullshit made up career percentage statistics that lead Mike Goldberg to say shit like on the UFC 165 broadcast when he said Costa Filippo has the second best takedown defense in the history of the middleweight division <laughs> as he's getting repeatedly tackled by Francis Carmont or as we say here in Montana Francis Carmont Frank Carmont if you log into the UFC's website and look at the stat box in the lower right hand corner on the main page, the default stat that shows up is average fight time. You know who's number one who has the shortest average fight time in UFC history? Uh, Tank Abbott. Drew McFedries. Oh, okay. Don't show me that shit <laughs> like that is in some way meaningful, like that's somehow instructive, or like Drew McFedries is a person of substance that I need to somehow consider in the historic landscape of the UFC. Are you fucking kidding me? Stop it with that shit. <laughs> if that's where we're at with stats in MMA... Let's think of some new stats. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, not to leave the, the co-main event podcast this week on a down note, but uh, we feel compelled to, to spend a round on, on this story that uh, Brazilian fighter Leandro Feijão Souza, uh, a 5-5 five and five flyweight uh, from, from the Nova Uniao uh, camp, died last Thursday uh, during a weight cut for uh, for Chuto Brazil 43 in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, he was 26 years old and slated to fight a one-in-one fighter named Gabriel Brazil. Um, I've seen some subsequent reports that said that he had a stroke and that a member of his family heard that he had been taking some diuretics leading up to the weight cut. At this point, though, we don't fully know what uh, precipitated his death. Obviously, it's tragic. We're not 100% sure that the uh, that the weight cut contributed to it, although to die just prior to a weigh-in in the middle of a weight cut, certainly uh, not great timing for uh, for how it looks in terms of, of, of the sport and the weight cut, the way weight cuts go, uh, you know, sport-wide in MMA. Uh, a sad deal, man, and it seems like if we had to guess, the weight cut probably contributed to things. It seems like that's really what we're we're going to talk about with this issue because not a whole lot of people, I feel like, knew Leandro Feijão uh, too great before this, and so now it's going to become a, uh, a kind of a launching pad for that discussion about the danger of weight cuts, regardless of whether that was to blame or not. And 
not for no reason, because we have long suspected that weight cuts, especially as they are often performed, are dangerous. And, you know, it, different guys do them different ways, and it's just kind of like crazy, unsupervised thing you're doing with your body. So you can see how, yeah, that could be dangerous, and that could kill you. If it wasn't the exact thing that, that killed him here, it could kill somebody in the future. Like, that's something I think we all acknowledge, right? Yeah, we should point out that uh, according to reports from MMAfighting.com, uh, he took this fight on short notice uh, and had to lose 33 pounds the week of the fight uh, to get down to, I believe, flyweight, 125 pounds. And uh, there is a report from a family member of his, his aunt, that he was taking Lasix, a duh. A diuretic pill. Uh, so obviously that stuff's not good for you. Uh, and, and neither is losing 33 pounds in order to compete in an athletic contest. Um, it feels a little bit like we're jumping to conclusions here, but, but do you think that this is, uh, uh, a warning sign, I guess, for how we do, uh, weight cut in this sport and, and do we need to, to revisit the rules? Although I feel like that, that's a, that's the kind of reform that, would take a really long time because you talk about reforming weight cutting rules. You're basically talking about reorganizing the entire sport. Yeah. And also you get to the question of how would you handle enforcement? Because, uh, you know, taking diuretics is usually illegal in most promotions. I don't know exactly what the deal is in Brazil, Shuto, but you can't take diuretics and then for to cut weight for like a UFC fighter to cut weight for a fight in North America. Uh, so, but it's one of those things where, you can tell people, here's what you're allowed to do during a weight cut, but the weight cutting is such a like behind-the-scenes kind of process that it's really tough for you to to follow up on. And like more dangerous stuff, you can test for diuretics. You can't really test to see like whether a guy used a sauna suit or something, which are like the plastics that the NCAA banned because of, of a death, I think. that uh, you, you know, how do you get these guys to do away with something that they feel ultimately gives them an advantage like especially if it's not something where like with drug testing you can just look at their urine and, and tell whether they've been breaking the rules or not it's tough I, I don't know exactly what the answer is to that i mean even stuff like if we were to talk about you know reorganizing the sport like how would you do it that uh, a next day weigh-in or something because that's not necessarily going to catch people on drastic weight cuts is it no it would be a really hard thing to enforce uh the weight cutting issue is a tricky one, I feel like, because like we just said, it's not good for you. Uh, it's, 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 it, it, it may well eventually prove to be one of the most physically harmful parts of the entire process, maybe even more physically harmful than a, than a fight if you don't go out there and, and take a lot of, uh, a lot of punishment or a lot of impact to the head. Uh, at the same time, I don't know how you really legislate any kind of a, a rule change on this issue. And, you know, in addition to that, lots of stuff about sports aren't good for you. Uh, fight sports in general, probably not the greatest thing for your, for your future, for your brain, for your health. You could die in a fight itself. Uh, uh, you know, guys tragically have died at football practice in the past from, uh, from heat stroke and exhaustion, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one, one person dies. Obviously it's, it's, it's a terrible thing that Leandro Souza, uh, you know, died during this weight cut, but it doesn't seem like an epidemic at this point that, that there's a lot of really tragic stuff going on for, for weight cuts. Um, so I feel a little bit torn about it, to be honest with you, because obviously weight cuts are, are bad for you, but at the same time, most of the, of the professionals get through it and, and nothing really terrible happens to them, especially in a, 
in a, a situation where they have quality regulation. And maybe that's the, the biggest lesson to take away from this, that that regulation and, and oversight are, are like very important things that you need to have in combat sports. And if you go to fight at, at smaller shows in places like Brazil or anywhere in the United States, frankly, at, a, at an underground show, you know, you're not always going to get the best regulation and you're not always going to have people there making sure that everybody's doing it clean or doing it the, 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 as safely as possible. You know, and one of the things you mentioned there was how we recognize that it's bad for your body long term. It might be one of the worst things you do for your body uh, if you're cutting weight and cutting a substantial amount of weight uh, pretty regularly. I mean, if we take these guys at their word that they a bunch of them have developed low testosterone uh, in their late 20s and early 30s, uh, you could c- come back around like if you believe that that's a real thing that's happening and it seems to be happening at rather shocking uh, levels uh, among MMA fighters, you can come back and say that that's due to uh, weight cutting, that they're damaging their endocrine systems through weight cutting. And then you get back to the same question that you ask about, like, you know, uh, if a guy does something to himself uh, that has consequences for his body, does that then give him permission to use a performance-enhancing substance to essentially erase his own mistakes. I mean, we make that argument when it comes to past steroid users like Vitor Belfort wanting testosterone exemptions. It's a little different with weight cutting because it's not illegal. It just might be ill-advised it, depending on how you do it and when and, and how much. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's a, a lot of questions there that in general we feel like is easy to just avoid. Like, hey, all right, this guy takes this fight. He shows up looking skeletal on Friday afternoon at the weigh-in with his, his eyes sucked back in his head. Uh, well, he'll be fine tomorrow. He'll drink some Pedialyte. It'll be okay. Yeah. And like we said, we, we still don't a hundred percent know about the correlation between this guy's death and the weight cut, uh, kind of puts Andre Pedroneris in an awkward situation since he is both the, the head of, uh, Nova Uniao and he's also the president of Shuto and also manages some of these guys, uh, who, who show up to fight. And he's been pretty, uh, vehement, I guess you would say, or at least uh, you made a lot of declarative statements about how the weight cut had nothing to do with this guy's death, uh, almost in a way where, well, if you're going to talk that much about it, kind of makes it seem like we all kind of suspect that the weight cut had something to do with it. Yeah. But at the same time, nothing has been proven yet. Uh, so yeah, a sad situation in Brazil and a uh, a tricky situation, I think, for for combat sports. A lot of states, athletic commissions, do weigh in stuff differently, and I just don't know what you do uh, in terms of big picture stuff to to try to make it safer. Uh, maybe a discussion that should be had, but I just don't know what the answer is at this point. I think we just had it and we got nowhere. We did just have it, but but. You'd think so. Smarter people should. You, have yes, it. you'd think that the people okay. who are in charge of of this sort of thing, both smarter and, and more capable than we are. So let's hope those people have this conversation. And okay. So our conclusion, uh, for those of you who are just tuning in now, other people who are smarter than us should figure this out. So get exactly. on that. There you if go. If you are smarter than us, right now, start on it. Figure this out. Uh, well, Ben, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll wrap up for this week. What is your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, I don't know if, if I mentioned this, but at when we were in Toronto for UFC 165, uh, Team America uh, beat the Canadian basketball team 4-3. Uh, to three. You did mention that a couple of dozen times. Yeah, well, we did. Uh, we beat them four games to three. Uh, you know, a, a little bit of a ragged display on all sides. Um, 
I'm just saying, I know Team Canada is out there, and I know they're listening, and I know they're probably thinking about how, you know, we got lucky or whatever. I'm just saying, I woke up this morning and uh, shot 103 pointers, 100 free throws, 100 layups. What did you do this morning, Team Canada? I'm just saying. I've heard if you if you miss one of the free throws while you're shooting them, you you run lines, you do some suicides. I never miss. Sorry, right. my cardio probably suffers for it. Who was the uh, leading scorer on on Team America? Did we have a, a comprehensive stats kept? I'm gonna say our stats were less than complete, but I would guess perhaps Case Kiefer from uh, the Las Vegas Sun, uh, maybe. Uh, your ESPN colleague, Brett Akimoto. Mm-hmm. Uh, even uh, former ESPN colleague, now uh, MMA fighting uh, writer, Chuck Mindenhall. Chuck Prisonball Mindenhall. Uh, I got to say, he was busting from behind the arc. And we were playing on the Toronto Raptors practice court. So the th- the NBA three-point arc. Wow. I didn't yeah. know Mindenhall that had that kind of range. Yeah. no, Was I, he I wearing the hat while he was out there? He was not wearing the hat. Yeah, it probably helps him sight in yeah. from long range. I think when he, when he takes off the hat, he becomes superhuman. Well, Ben, this week, my just saying stuff is sort of a follow-up. Last week, I talked about Chris Cyborg Santos uh, beating up a woman in a Muay Thai fight on the street in the Fremont District in Las Vegas. In front of a gift shop. In front of a gift shop. You were adamant about the gift shop part. This week, it turns out, I saw a... Uh, uh, a news update that said Cyborg expects to fight for the Lion Fight Muay Thai Championship later on this year. Uh, and when I saw that, do you know what it made me think of? I do not. It made me think of Al Pacino. Let me tell you why. Please, please do. At one time, Al Pacino was regarded as a pretty good actor. Maybe even a great actor. He was in quality movies, such Serpico. as Godfathers 1 and 2. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. He was That's in Serpico. He was in Glengarry Glen Ross. Another, another good movie. And then... In the late 90s, I believe, he won the Oscar for playing the blind dude in Scent of a Woman. Really? And it seems like Pacino realized, oh, hey, wait a second. I can just yell and everybody's cool with that? Like everyone thinks that that's like a great performance? Okay. And after that, Al Pacino quickly devolved into a dude who just yells his way through movies like Any Given Sunday and uh, The Recruit. Did we start uh, out talking about Cyborg? Devil's Advocate. Thank you for bringing me back around to my point. (laughs) In the same way that Al Pacino was once regarded as a good actor, I wonder if later on we will think of Chris Santos as a person that we once regarded as a great and relevant fighter in the women's mixed martial arts industry. And it makes me wonder if she goes out there and beats the shit out of another woman I've never heard of in a Muay Thai fight, is she going to win that championship and be like, Oh, wait a second. This is all I have to do. Just show up and uh, put on these big gloves and punch these girls in the face. And it's from a gift shop. So I can get a a t-shirt afterwards. Maybe I'll just keep doing this. I'm just saying, just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to uh, break down all the happenings in mixed martial arts. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We're out. Now, see, I thought Al Pacino won the Oscar for Devil's Advocate. I thought that was a, no, it was a duo. No, no. I thought he and Keanu both took the Oscar. <laughs> no, they were, they were both the people's champions that year. But, uh, in fact, when Pacino won the Oscar for Son of a Woman, it felt almost like a makeup Oscar. Like the, the conciliatory, like, hey, man, you should have won this a long time ago. Like when they found-